0: all our listeners and welcome back to episode 8 of the Cast. So the Cast is a weekly podcast and an initiative of the Carver Project and just to remind you the goal of the podcast is to engage with Christian faculty in higher education so we'll highlight their work so that's their scholarship their teaching and service and the goal is to bridge connections between the university church and society. My name is Penina Achayo-Laker, and I'm here once again with my most esteemed co-host, John Inazu. John and I are both faculty at Washington University in St. Louis and fellows with the Curva project. Today, I'm really excited and we're honored to spend some time talking with Ruth Lopez Turley. Ruth, welcome to the CurvaCast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
1: Ruth, it's great to have you with us, and and Penny and I, I love in your intro. You always every week you call me your esteemed colleague. It's the nicest thing anyone says about me all week. So,
0: <laughs> there you, know,
1: you go. <laughs> first, first highlight here. Um, well, so so Ruth, I'm so glad that you're here. You know, we were just saying before we started recording, you were you were scheduled to come out to watch you for a talk, and of course, code has complicated, all of that. But we're we're excited to be doing this in in lieu of a an in person talk and and talk a bit more personally about your own journey and how you approach uh, your professional work and your teaching and your community engagement uh, both as a scholar uh, and a Christian and so I'd love um, I'd love if you want to just sort of start off by telling us a little bit about your background and what you do professionally
2: sure so I'm a professor of sociology at Rice University and I direct uh, a, what we call a research practice partnership so it's a it's a partnership between Rice and 11 Houston area school districts. Uh, So that work is really aiming to connect education research because I'm a sociologist of education. That's my primary focus area. Uh, So we try to connect education research directly with education leaders here in in the Houston area. And uh, yeah, that, that work uh, has uh, taken up a large portion of my time. I, I like to say that that's primarily what I do. And then I'm, I'm a professor sort of on the side. I shouldn't say, it <laughs> properly, but, but that's what it feels like. Um, and, and I uh, came to this kind of work uh, because I, um, well, I got into this the uh, field of education because of my background, uh, frankly, um, because of how I grew up and uh, I learned, you know, very early on um, as a as a, I, I should backtrack and say I, I grew up in Laredo, Texas, uh, which is on the U.S.-Mexican border. My family is from Mexico, um, but I was born and raised uh, on the border, which is um, really fascinating in many ways, uh, growing up bilingually and biculturally um, and binationally in many ways. Uh, but uh, but there were a lot of things that I observed there on the border um, having to do with uh, inequalities, in, in educational inequalities in particular. Uh, so from a young age, I learned that injustice is real uh, and that um, poor and uneducated people uh, bear the brunt of it um, and that educational opportunity is is far from from equal uh, so uh, even though I, as a kid I wouldn't have used that language of course I didn't have the, the terminology for it but I certainly was aware of these issues as a kid and um, so I got very interested in education and um, through a series of miracles, uh, and I don't use that word lightly, um, th- through a series of miracles, I had um, an opportunity to to go to college and even you know, go to grad school and, and really get into the study of our educational system and really focusing, as a sociologist, focusing on systemic issues um, in our education system, and and then I ended up becoming um, a professor and researcher, precisely because I thought that that research could make a difference um, in the world. Uh, but I was wrong. <laughs> um, I was wrong that um, in in the sense that I thought that research would sort of automatically make a difference, and it turns out that That's not the way it works, Um, but that research could make a difference, but you you have to make a very, very explicit effort to to make it so. Uh, So that's what I ended up focusing on, especially uh, after I came to Rice in in 2010. Um, I came explicitly to start this research practice partnership that I mentioned earlier um, to really try to, to make sure that the research that that I produced here would have an impact.
0: Wow, Ruth, there's so many threads to what you just shared that I would love to pick up on and I'm not exactly sure where to start, but um, it strikes me um, that it's very clear that your background and upbringing uh, went on to inspire the work that you do and and I'm really curious to hear more about the, this work you're doing in, in education inequality, and more specifically, why why is it important that um, that education research is linked to decision making or policy or district leaders? Why, why is that link important to make?
2: Yes, that's a that's a very good question. Uh, so it, it it they need each other is the way I would summarize it, that researchers need uh, education leaders and education leaders need researchers. Uh, On the one hand, um, our uh, schools and school districts in particular are quite literally, in many cases, sitting on mountains of data. Uh, They are required by by state, by their states, they're required to collect uh, a lot of data on their students, and um, and but uh, many uh, <clears throat> many districts do not have the capacity or the resources to use those data for research purposes. Um, they primarily use those data for reporting purposes. Like accountability purposes and things like that, um, but not they generally don't have the luxury, right and because as you all know, research is very expensive. Um, they don't have the luxury to to use those data for you know research purposes in the sense of like taking a step back and doing you know analyses that that really try to understand. Um, causal relationships, or try to understand like what are what are the main predictors of dropping out, and what and what can we do? More importantly, what can what, what can we do to alter those predictors? Um, those kinds of analyses and that kind of research, um, most school districts and even state agencies, state education agencies, um, do not have uh, the resources or the and therefore the capacity to do that. On the other hand, those of us sitting at research institutions, where uh, research capacity is our bread and butter, right? That, that's that's what we mm-hmm. specialize in. Um, we have unparalleled research capacity, uh, but we don't always have easy access to mm-hmm. data, um, and and so so that's. Um, sort of the quick summary of how, you know, how it is that we can really help each other um, and, and really try to, so I'm ultimately trying to connect the research capacity of research institutions. Uh, And I, and I'm saying this in plural because um, some years ago, I helped to found a national network of these types of partnerships uh between research institutions and education agencies. Um, so this national network now has over 40 member partnerships, like the one here in Houston, uh, but they're in cities all over the country, you know, like New York, LA, Baltimore, San Francisco, New Orleans, and so on. Um, so these partnerships are all over the country, and we are we work together to try to do a better job of connecting research to de- uh, decision making, but uh, but all of it focusing on improving educational mm-hmm. equity because that there's a lot of work that needs to be done in that. Area. I, I guess I don't mean to say. I hope, hopefully, it, everybody already knows that. But, but it's. Um, but there's a lot that we can do to improve educational equity through the use of research. Now, uh, research isn't the only mechanism uh, out there, obviously, to for improving educational equity. But it's the one that that we as researchers can uh, can offer, right? And in, in terms of. This effort. And that's what I'm trying to make easier for researchers to do work that can directly inform decision-making and ultimately have an impact on on improving educational equity.
1: Ruth, I'm so struck as you're talking about this institutional partnership, at, at least in my experience, when I think about the major research universities I know well and their local communities, mm-hmm. there is such a lack oh, of yes. trust between those mm-hmm. institutions and you're describing an effective partnership that actually requires a ton of trust. And I, I, how do you even go about That's building that trust from the ground up?
2: Why it's don't you so ask so an hard. easy question first? And then you know. <laughs> that, is, oh, that is so hard. Um, but I, But there are things that I have learned um, over the years is, uh, so, um, the partnership that I'm referring to, I never even said the name, the Houston Education Research Consortium, or HERC for short. Um, HERC was founded in 2011. So we've now been doing this for almost a decade. And I would say we're, we're, I feel like we're, <laughs> we, we've come a long way, but we also have a long way to go in terms of how to build and maintain, uh, cross institutional trust. Um, for that matter, it's hard even within your own institutions, right? (laughs) Um, Even harder across institutions that are organized in very different ways, that have different organizational cultures. Um, It it can be very challenging, especially because it takes a lot of time and effort to build and maintain these relationships. And then there's all this turnover. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And so every time there's turnover, you feel like you have to in some ways, start all over again. Um, But what we've learned is over the years, we have in some ways institutionalized the partnership such that when there's turnover, um, and usually there's there's more turnover within our district partners than within the university, although there's also turnover within the university, but it seems in in our case, at least it's much more common among our district partners. Um, But if the partnership itself is somewhat institutionalized, then when there is that turnover, we can continue the work pretty seamlessly um, and just uh, start working with whoever replaces uh, that person um, but while we're building up that new relationship we uh, simultaneously already have all these other relationships across the district that help to move the work along even while we're trying to bring in a new person um, so so but but to answer your question about how to build that trust um, it takes a, a, a very concerted effort to make sure that we have really uh, frequent and good communication. Um, there are a couple of things that have helped to make that happen. A big one is that um, we, I guess, probably maybe uh, seven or eight years ago, were able to hire uh, a liaison that um, is actually, I shouldn't say we hired, that so works at the district um, is, is officially a district employee, but their salary is paid by us. Mm. Um, so that person is physically, lo- well, not anymore, not that everybody's working remotely, but was physically uh, located uh, there at district headquarters within their research department. And they really helped us to make sure that we're communicating with the right people for each particular project right that to make sure that the right people are at the table um and really making sure like giving us a heads up about like big decisions that are coming up um from and from their point of view and things like that so having a liaison is extremely helpful to make sure that really good communication and that really helps with the relationships of trust Um, and then the the second thing that i would mention that has helped a lot is actually responding to crises, uh, since we've had a lot of those lately, Um, you know, in, in 2017, um, as you all probably know, Houston was hit by Hurricane Mm -hmm. Harvey, um, which was a major crisis. And um, we were able to uh, really focus on being good partners with our um, local districts, and and we just stopped everything that we were doing and asked, "What can we do to help? What do you need from us right now?" Um, and we were able to take on what I now call like emergency research projects. Um, that, frankly, for a lot of academics, would probably sound like terrible projects because often they're just like descriptive analyses, and you know um, but, but what, during a crisis, a lot of times the districts, they just need to know what is going on. Like huh. how many students were affected by the floods, um, and to what extent and where are they located? Like, we just need to know that. Um, and that's so those are the kinds of things that we focused on. Um, and, and then now with, with COVID, um, same thing, like as soon as schools closed down in mid-March we turned to our district partners and said you know what do you need from us and and they were like okay we need you to develop a survey instrument that will help us know like how many students uh, don't have devices don't have internet like we didn't we did and we need to know this ASAP um so like our team literally created an instrument overnight practically and um We never do work like that, by the way, and I wouldn't recommend it. But during a crisis that the the reason why I'm saying this is that that helped to further build Mm -hmm. trust Mm -hmm. um, with our partners like they they know that even though we're researchers and we care deeply about the research, we're also willing to be Mm -hmm. flexible and we're willing to pivot when needed, we're willing willing to help during times of crisis. And it has really helped to solidify those relationships and further build trust because they know that they can count on us for these types of, of efforts.
0: Ruth, I thought that was a difficult question. Clearly, (laughs) clearly all your answers were just brilliant. And, and especially I think the, the last, um, remarks you, you made about what it means to be a good partner I think those are really poignant especially for such a time as this and and in in the little experience I've had working with community partners here in st. Louis one of the uh, sort of like the repetitive themes was our partners having this sort of fear of not being valuable to to us anymore because of you know the pandemic and the inability to connect with them on a personal level. And, and I think um, what you just shared about how it's important for institutions of higher learning, especially those with relationships with the just partners in the community to to not be afraid to pivot and rethink their agenda and efforts and just simply ask where they could be of help in such a time of crisis is, is really instrumental in building that trust and developing those relationships. So I... Um. Yes, your points were really, really great. Thanks for sharing those. Um,
1: yeah, and just how, how radical it is, even for a university yes. to say, "How can we be helpful?" As opposed to, "Here is the help we have for you." Right? <laughs> just how different right, that is. Right.
0: Um. So I'm just curious. Just maybe take you back a little bit. Why? Why sociology? At what point did you recognize that sociology was a pathway to? to understanding a lot of the systemic issues, but also getting in a position where you could um, effect change in your community.
2: That's a great question. I, so I didn't know what sociology was until I went to college and uh, I fell in love with it almost immediately. I I still remember uh, when I was an undergrad um, sitting in a, in was my very first sociology course. uh, And I re- I remember we were studying poverty, uh, and, 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 and looking at poverty, not from the typical like individual perspective that I had heard of, um, growing up, like things like, you know, if you're poor it's because you didn't work hard enough or you didn't study enough or you did, you know, blame, primarily blaming the, the, the victims. Right. And, um, and that you're poor because mm-hmm. it's your fault. Uh, whereas, When I was sitting in the sociology course, I I heard very clearly and saw research evidence showing all these systemic factors that played such an important role in determining who was poor, who was not, and who was able to uh, move out of poverty, what we call social mobility, um, and who was not, and like all these factors. I mean, you could literally, and there are maps, you can go online, even there are maps that you can look up and and see a person's chances of upward mobility, largely determined by where they live, and the types of policies that are in place where they live and those kinds of things. So so for me, as an undergrad, it was huge, it was eye opening. And then to make matters even more personal. um, I remember sitting in the sociology class, and, and as we were talking about, um, these issues, they used Laredo oh. as an example. <laughs> my, my town, I, like, I sat up because they were like, "And this, you know, this city has a really high poverty rate, especially child poverty. It has one of the highest child poverty rates in the country." And I sat up wow. because I was like, "I knew there was something wrong. <laughs> I knew it. Like this was it was wow. hard." And 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 then, but then to see like someone talking about this and. And in a, and it was in at Stanford, so it was like far, you know far away in California, very far from my hometown. And yet they were talking about my hometown, and I was just so amazed, and I it completely got my attention. And, and I was because th- I was originally thinking about studying chemistry, <laughs> so this is very different. This like really got my attention, and also um, I would say got my attention from uh, from a Christian perspective from, um, you know, as a person of faith, uh, trying to figure out, uh, what, uh, what is my role, our role, I should say, um, as Christians, um, who, who are called to, to be a light in the world, right? Who are called to, um, especially because, um, especially who are called to serve those who are oppressed, those who are, um, suffering in different ways. And as you know, like all over the Bible, it seems like Jesus is always talking about, um, widows and orphans and people who are hungry and poor and who are outcast. And, you know, that's the overarching theme. Um, and that really, uh, called out to me as well, and thinking that there's a reason why Jesus focuses on these people. There's a reason why Jesus has a special um, heart for those who are oppressed um, and suffering. And that's what really called out to me, not only because of my personal experiences growing up poor in, in a very rich country, um, but also uh, in terms of what I started to study uh, at, as an undergrad, and thinking this is it, like this is, this makes sense. Um, and then, and and then I ended up going to grad school in sociology because I thought I wanted to do research that would, um, that would help bring about systemic changes in 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 these areas. But wow. but it's a lot. <laughs> It's a lot, right? It's, it's hard. It's hard to really bring about these systemic changes, and they take time, and and but these issues are so mm-hmm. urgent.
1: So. I'm I'm struck um, as you're talking. I was thinking about um, in my last book, I did some reflections on what it means to be a, a translator across institutions, and thinking specifically of being a Christian who has to translate to the university what Christianity is, but also a professor who has to translate to churches and Christian uh, Christian communities, what the value of university research and, and culture is. And in your area of, re- even though as you explained it, how intuitive to you, these connections between a gospel biblical focus and structural injustices, or, you know, the need, the urgent need to help um, those who are the least of these, when, when your research translates into, Policy initiatives. Mm-hmm. There is some tension there with certain segments of, of Christian communities in certain churches, and so I would imagine that that your task of translating back to those mm-hmm. communities why all of this uh, holds together is is probably I would imagine challenging at times. And wonder if you have any thoughts on on that, how it's been.
2: Yes, that's that's absolutely right. Um, while on the one hand, I I definitely get a lot of support um, from, uh, local churches and church leaders and, um, um, and just other people of faith in the community at the same time, uh, when I talk to them about these issues, uh, it's not always, uh, received open, you know, with open hands. Um, to give you one example, I last uh, last year, I had a, an opportunity to speak to a local group of um, church leaders, uh, a bunch of pastors and um, and other church leaders, as well as uh, school district leaders, which was very interesting to have them both in the same room. and for me to preach a sermon <laughs> to uh, both church and district leaders. In, in our area, it, it was through a, an organization that tries to um, to set up partnerships between churches and schools uh, in order for churches to support schools. And to be clear, not to proselytize or anything like that, but but just to provide for churches to provide financial support as well as other forms like tutoring and other forms of support that schools need. So this organization brought together, you know, all these local pastors and, um, and, and, and district leaders and asked me to speak to them. And I set it up, I I set it up as a sermon, um, about, um, the, the good Samaritan, but focusing on the fact that, um, the, that, that, that the first, uh, leaders, spiritual leaders that came across um, this man that had been beaten and laid laying on the side of the road, um, that when they saw this man, they not only saw him clearly needing help, but, um, avoided him by crossing over to the other side of the road. And I use that as an, as an illustration of what we do today, um, as, um, and even as people of faith that, should know better, right, um, that we often separate ourselves from those who are poor and suffering. Um, and in fact, um, and I think one of the main points in that, um, in, when Jesus shared that that parable, um, that Jesus was, was saying that they, in some ways, they were using their religion as an excuse, mm. um, right? Because it, it, if they were, they were priests, they couldn't get their hands dirty in helping someone that might have that been dead, right? They weren't supposed to have contact with, with dead people. Um, and, and in the, in the parable, that, that person appeared to be dead. Um, and so maybe they were using their religion, their religion as an excuse to, um, to cross over to the other side of the road and not have any uh, interaction with someone in need. Uh, and, and sometimes we do that. As religious people today, um, that we uh, it, we don't want to send our children to public schools um, where uh, we you know they might be exposed uh, to people um, who uh, who are poor and um, who are minorities or who are very different from them and that might actually somehow contaminate their children. Um, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not too much, because uh, these are the kinds of arguments that I have heard even here uh, to today, um, from very privileged parents who just don't want their children to be exposed, uh, to, uh, to children who are poor, black and Brown, for example. Um, and, and, and sometimes they use their religion as an excuse. Like we want to protect our children. We want to, um, and, 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 and so, so this it sets up this whole problem that I think, um, is is still very relevant today that sometimes we use our religion as an excuse to separate ourselves from people in need um and it gets even more complicated when it comes to our children right um that and and so i'm not saying any of this is easy uh, i don't think jesus was saying that either um but rather that it's something that we need to at least pause and think about like what are we doing as people of faith What are we doing to support and maintain these uh, systems of injustice, especially when it comes to our educational system that is growing increasingly, by the way, there's research evidence to show this, it's growing increasingly different for rich and poor children. Their Mm -hmm. educational experiences, both at home and at school, over time are growing increasingly different. Um, what are we doing about that? And is uh, and especially as people of faith, what are, we we actually might be playing a role in in maintaining those differences, as opposed to doing something about about them. Um, so yeah, so I've shared messages like that with local um, church leaders, and some of them are very receptive to that, and others are not. Mm-hmm.
1: Right, right. I would, so I'd imagine one one pushback you might get is, you know, wait a minute, the parable of the Good Samaritan is an individual parable of, of individual action. And, you, you know, you who study structures, what is the challenge for an individual family? Sh- should that family send their individual kid into a structurally broken system? Or is the solution from Christians is the necessary solution, an institutional one? rather than a case-by-case individual one.
2: And that's a great, yeah, it's exactly the, the, the kind of uh, pushbacks that I get. Um, and it's a very understandable one. Um, so my response to that is is that, um, yeah, absolutely. I understand. And I'm also a mom. I have two two children, two middle schoolers. Um, I, I get it. Like I understand that um, you don't want your your individual children to have to sort of pay the price of integration or pay the price of, you know, like, um, and suffer negative consequences as a result. At the same time, there are a lot of things that, uh, that congregations can do together. And and that's why I shared this with this particular group, because as I said earlier, there were, there were church leaders that were there explicitly because they said they were interested in supporting Mm -hmm. schools. Uh So I wanted to use that as a challenge for them to consider, well, first of all, to thank them for their support of these local public schools, because like I said, they're helping out financially and in terms of human capital, which is wonderful. But I wanted to challenge them to consider taking that that support to the next level, which I think is the level that Jesus was, was going after with this parable and other many other places in the Bible, right? Where the level of, um, sacrificial kind of, um, giving, um, where, yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying that this, that there isn't any cost associated to this, but perhaps we can, uh, minimize those costs. If we work together as congregations, for example, to not only send money To these public schools, but perhaps consider sending our children to these public schools. But if we work together, not just like one family doing this, right, but like together working to uh, promote integration, um, which by the way, uh, there's, there's a body of research that suggests that, um, that racial segregation, um, when, when, uh, Local areas are have a higher level of segregation. They also have a higher level of achievement gaps. Mm-hmm. So achievement gaps, uh, performance gaps, are are have a very strong correlation with um, segregation. And but it but but the research seems to suggest that it's not primarily driven by the racial segregation per se, but rather it's primarily driven by economic segregation that is always or almost always tied to racial segregation. (laughs) So the two go hand in hand, Um, but the point is that that's why, that's why I think this is a really important issue, right? We need to think about um, how our schools and school districts are segregated because this um, almost always ends up putting black and brown students in high concentrations of poverty, right, schools that, that have really high concentrations of poverty. And it is there that we see the gaps really take off, right? Um, so back to like, what can congregations do? Um, I think that there are some things that, that they can do together um, to try to to counteract um, these uh, highly segregated schools in our area.
0: Wow, really, <laughs> a lot of really great um, points and provocations um... And I, I love this idea of a collective effort, Ruth. And I think that um is, is one way that the church and um and just people of faith can 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 think about what they do in a way that um can get to a place of impact. I'm I'm, I'm reminded of so the Carver Project has this uh this new Carver Classroom initiative that John and I are have both been teaching in, and it's a series of four four week mini courses on different areas, and um, and the one that I'm teaching with uh, my colleague Heidi Kolk is a course that is uh, on sort of understanding St. Louis's racial history and engaging that through sight and story, and it's a it's a class it's a classroom designed for ministry leaders, and it's it's been so great to to be in a space. Um, with other people of faith, but also um, leaders in the church, and 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 see them uh, learn about some of these communities and neighborhoods, and uh, and and start to think about, oh my goodness, you know, I, I had never really put one and two together, and that by uh, getting a chance to hear some local stories, and it's sort of like a way to humanize some of the data that we see because it can be also overwhelming. Um, but just to see how in the classroom we're starting to get to a place where we're thinking about, okay, what are some tangible next steps and and, and things that we can do in the church um, to to either throw more light on these systemic issues or to have a kind of collective sort of uh, effort around these issues. And I, and I think the points that you bring up, the suggestions are really great. Um, it strikes me that it's, it's already it's almost forty minutes in, and we have barely touched the surface, Ruth, and haven't even talked about your teaching, which I know you're probably doing less of so with all the amount of research you're doing, uh, and I know John is is probably thinking about how, oh my you, know, we need to probably wrap wrap up uh, the podcast so we don't go over the time limit, but if I could squeeze in one more question <laughs> if I could squeeze in one more question, I, I would just love to hear um in, 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 in regard to teaching, if, uh, there is any one specific class that, uh, that you teach that, um, is a favorite of yours and, and maybe why that class specifically. And yeah, if we just like share that before we wrap it up, that'd be great.
2: Sure. So, uh, my favorite class is the sociology of education, no surprise. Uh, and, and it's one that I'm teaching right now where I just started. Uh, this week, this was our first week of, of classes at Rice. Um, <clears throat> unfortunately, we're, fortunately and unfortunately, we're uh, fully remote mm-hmm. right now. <clears throat> um, actually, no, Rice is doing dual delivery, but my particular course is fully remote. Um, I, uh, so fortunate, I guess it's fortunate because the less exposure to COVID, uh, I suppose, but but unfortunately because it's it's just not the same. Um, I miss uh, interacting with students Mm -hmm. in person. Uh, But the reason why uh, it's my favorite course is because um, I really, really love the way that students respond to learning these things, many of them for the first time. Uh, It's kind of like what I described earlier when I was an undergrad and, and learned about these kinds of things for the first time. And I love to see... Uh, their reactions and their excitement to it. And I always end the semester with an invitation. Uh, to, I, I invite them to apply these things, the things that they learn, regardless of what kind of career they end up in. I think that what they learn in, in sociology of education is likely to be applicable in some way. Um, and so I, at the end of the semester, I always invite them to, to stay in touch And to let me know how, you know, how they're able to apply these, these concepts to their um, careers. And it's amazing how many of them actually reach out to me years later. Um, uh, In fact, just like a month ago, I had someone reach out to me uh, from like 13 years ago or something like that. And it's crazy. And I love it. It's very encouraging for me to hear what they're doing, how they're applying these things. Um, and so that's always one of my favorite or my the favorite course oh. that I teach.
1: I love that. Yeah, that's that's your, uh, building your own alumni <laughs> network. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. um, it's been so great to have you with us. And thanks for taking the time. Lo- love talking to you and being challenged by you and uh, so grateful for the work that you're doing. And I think really modeling for for what I hope is as Christian, as all of us as Christian faculty will, will be thinking about, which is. How are we serving not only the, the university through our research and teaching, but how are we in, engaged in the community around us to which we're called? And how are we serving the church at the same time? And, and as you've shared with us today, you're immersed in all of that, which doesn't make it easy, but it, but it's a, it's a wonderful place to be. So thank you for your work and thanks for being with us today.
2: Thank you for the invitation. I loved it.